If you've been with us at all this semester, you know we're going through the parables. They're these stories that Jesus tells to help disrupt the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about grace, the way we think about God, the way we think about other people. Um, and, you know, they're, they're disruptive, right? They're, they're wrecking balls that come through, smash through our assumptions, smash through what we think we already know so that Jesus can rebuild it in a way that's right and that's true. Uh, we've looked at the prodigal son. Uh, we saw that in the younger son, you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. God the Father is always there welcoming us back to himself. And then the older brother, we saw that you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace, right? There's always something in us that needs God's grace and forgiveness. We looked at the rich man and Lazarus, right? Like, how do we know what's true? How do we know what's real? And we saw that in the story, Jesus says that Scripture is this voice from outside of ourselves that tells us what's really going on in the world and tells us a story about who Jesus is. The last two weeks, uh, we've looked at the the parables of the Pharisee and tax collector and the unforgiving servant, uh, asking and talking about what does it mean to be okay? Like that question that we all ask, am I okay? Am I enough? Am I accepted? Am I loved? Um, We saw in the Pharisee and the tax collector that we can either try and earn that, like like the Pharisee does, like all of us try to do most of the time, and it leaves us tired, and it leaves us prideful, and it leaves us looking down at others, or we can receive it as a gift, as the tax collector does. He says, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and he just receives this gift of acceptance from God. We looked last week at the unforgiving servant and how receiving that enough, that that justification, that I'm okay from God, frees us then to forgive other people because we know that God hasn't accepted us because of who we are. And so we, we can forgive others, right? We don't have to exact payment, but we can actually let offenses go. Uh, tonight we're looking at a story that answers a different question. Um, how do I change? How can I be different? Can people really change? Can I change? Uh, Some of you have a gut reaction to this question. Can people change? No, right? People don't really change. Maybe you've been hurt by somebody over and over again, and you keep giving second chances and third chances and fourth chances, and you think maybe this time it'll be different, but a few weeks later, a few days later, a few hours later, you're hurt again because people don't change. Maybe you're struggling with some sin in your life or some like perceived deficiency in yourself and you've been fighting against it for so long with so little to show for your effort that you've convinced yourself that this is just who I am. Right? Maybe maybe you're someone who says like I'd like to be the kind of person that gets my work done more than 5 minutes before it's due. But I always get distracted, right? Like that do you want to watch one more episode on Netflix? Like, I always click the button, and I even, like, skip the credits so I can get to the next one quicker because I'm trying to save time. Or I get distracted by my friends or by video games or sleep or a thousand other things. And so you tell yourself, well, I just work better under pressure, right? Like, that's what you tell yourself so that you don't have to feel the sting of disappointment at yourself every time you pull an all-nighter. Maybe you're the kind of person that says, I don't want to look at porn anymore, But then I see that cute girl in the Starbucks line, or I see that guy coming out of the gym, and I'm lonely, I'm angry, and I'm bored, and it's just a matter of time. And so you tell yourself that, like, one day this will get better. Once I meet somebody, this problem will be fixed, or I'll deal with this when I'm married. You tell yourself that so you can ignore the fact that your habits don't magically disappear when you say, I do. There's just somebody else there to witness them. 
Right? You tell yourself, I'm going to exercise more this year. I'm going to read my Bible more this year. This semester, I'm not going to stress about my grades so much. I'm going to make more time for my friends. I'm not going to disappear into this relationship like I did with my last six. I'm going to stop yelling at people. I'm going to care less about what other people think. And yet we find ourselves falling back into the same old habits time and time again. Can we change? Others of you are just now realizing that you need to change in some areas, right? You've been here a month, which is just long enough for some of you to have done some things that you never thought you were capable of. It's just long enough for you to realize that, man, my parents and my high school did not prepare me for college. It's just long enough for you to realize that eating Chick-fil-A 18 times a week is not helping with your sleep, with your health, or with your DB. Thank you, Noah. <laughs> but it's so good, right? Like that pickle brine. Um, like, and these patterns are so deeply ingrained in me. And, and these struggles have been going on for so long. How do I change? Is change even possible? Let's look at what Jesus says about this in our stories tonight. This is Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44. Just three verses tonight. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let me read that again for us, just so it sinks in. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray and then we'll talk about that for a few minutes. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for the way that it disrupts the way we think. Uh, pray, Father, that you would reshape our thinking about ourselves, uh, reshape our hope of change, uh, that we might long to be different, uh, that you might help us to actually change. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So this parable, um, like all of the parables, confronts something about the way we think. And, and the first thing this parable does is confront the way we think about ourselves. Uh, if you've ever taken a philosophy class, whether in high school or like philosophy 101 here as a freshman or something, uh, you've heard about, you may not remember, but you've heard about this man named Descartes. Uh, Descartes' project, his goal, was to construct like an absolutely unassailable way of thinking about the world, right? One that couldn't be called into question. Because he asked himself questions like, how do I know that you guys actually exist? Right? That you're not a dream that I'm having or some hallucination that I'm having. How do I know that like, I'm not a brain in a jar plugged into alien electrodes? How do I know I'm not in the matrix? And he went down further and further and further and realized, like, I don't know those things. Like, I don't, I can't know that any of you exist. You could just be a hallucination. I could be standing, speaking to an empty room like a crazy person. But deep down at the bottom of everything, he found one fact, one unassailable truth. I think, therefore, I am. In other words, I must exist because I'm thinking, right? Like even if I am a brain in a jar, even if I'm hallucinating, there's one thing I'm sure of that I exist. It may not be in the way I think I do, but I exist. And from there, he builds up this whole like way of thinking about the world. And, and it's really been influential in the way we think about ourselves because we think about ourselves primarily as thinking things, right? We think, therefore, we are. 
we see this all around us. This is, this is post-enlightenment thought, which is just you know, philosophically where we are in a nutshell. We think, therefore we are. So if you ever watched reruns of G.I. Joe, you know, when like the Joes save the day, and the episode finishes, and then they come back up and they give you like this little instructional piece about like some random thing, and the slogan comes up, knowledge is power. Or how do we solve the problems of the world? Education. Raising awareness. Like if people just know about it, then they will do something about it. Or how do we keep people from texting while driving, right? Texting while driving is this incredibly dangerous thing because we're, we're in charge of like a several hundred, couple thousand pounds of metal and glass and like weight and sharp stuff. And there are other people around us and we're going like 75 miles an hour down the highway and like we're not, we don't have our eyes on the road. And so, like, people say, well, if they just know the consequences, that will change the behavior, right? So you've all seen the commercial where, like, it's right after the, the accident has happened and there's a car upside down and the ambulance lights flashing in the background. Um, and then we get in the car and we text and drive again, right? Our, our story tonight tells us that that assumption, that, that what we know, what we think, that that determines who we are and what we do, that that's wrong, Jesus says you are not primarily a thinking thing. It's actually what you love that governs what you do, that governs who you are. It's actually what you love that governs how you think. You are primarily a lover. All of your actions, all of your energy, all of your time is spent in pursuit, not of what is reasonable and logical, but in pursuit of what you treasure what you worship, what you revere. This is what we see in this story. And, and it, it catches us off, off guard because it's so short, right? Like remember the story of the prodigal son, you've got several different characters, you've got a plot, like how could the younger son be so senseless and insensitive to ask his father for inheritance and like what's gonna happen? And he comes back and he's welcomed, like, and it gets under our skin because we, lo we lower our defenses. In this short story, it's basically Jesus reaching out and slapping you in the face. Right? It's like, it's so short, it just snaps you into attention. Because we don't know anything about the man in the field. We don't know anything about the merchant. We don't know anything about the field. We don't know anything about the marketplace or the treasure or the pearl. Like, all we see in the stories is this. These guys find something of value, and they do everything it takes to get it. These men, whether they're looking for it or not, find something that's incredibly value, find something that, that they treasure, and immediately, without thinking, without consulting their parents, or their friends, or their spouses, which is a real bad idea, um, they buy it, right? They liquidate assets, they do whatever it takes to possess that thing. It's an obsession. There's nothing that will stand in these guys' way of obtaining this thing, and this is a picture of us. When we treasure something, and we all do, our entire self is bent toward that thing. Any time you spend on it will not have been wasted. Any money that we spend on it will not be considered expensive. Anything else that we have to give up for it will be deemed a worthy sacrifice and may not even feel like a sacrifice at all. Here's what I mean. Um, I went to NC State and it took me a couple years, but by the time I was done at NC State, I was a devout NC State football fan. Um, it's kind of like being a Carolina Panthers fan and that like prospects are never real high, but they're never real bad. And on any given week, we could show up and beat like Clemson or Virginia Tech or lose to like JMU or Western Carolina. Um, 
But in college, that's what Saturdays were for, was for NC State football, right? Especially home games. Like when, when there was the opportunity to go to the home game and to tailgate, like that's what Saturday's purpose was. And it was not difficult to get out of bed at 7 a.m. to get stuff ready for the tailgate. It was not oppressive to be in the like early September swamp heat of Raleigh. Right? And the canopy, the like 12 by 12 pop-up tent that we bought to give us some shade, like it was money well spent. And taking my shirt off and having my torso painted red was not crazy. It was an act of devotion to NC State. Right? It didn't matter what else was going on in my life. Like, it didn't matter who was in town. It didn't matter how many tests I had on Monday. It didn't matter if my senior project was due, like, the next week. Like, it never even crossed my mind that I would skip an NC State home game. Right? Like, it wasn't even a question of should I go or shouldn't I go. It was, it was an assumption. Like, it was a fact. NC State's playing. Andrew Shank's going to be there. This is how you tell what you love. What are the non-negotiables in your life? What are the things that like, you just don't even question? Right? It, it doesn't matter how sick I am. I'm going to this class. It doesn't matter who I'm with. When that person calls, I'm picking up the phone. It doesn't matter how much work I have to do. I'm going to Nine Lives on Thursday night. Or I'm going hiking on Saturday afternoon. Or I'm going to church on Sunday morning. What are the non-negotiables in your life? Because here's a secret. There really aren't any. Like, there's nothing in this world that you absolutely have to do besides, like, eat some food and drink some water and get some sleep. Um, There are only things that you love that you're unwilling to set aside for something else. So what is that for you? What's your, like, unassailable truth? What's your NC State tailgate and football game that's a non-negotiable in your life? Jesus is telling us that what we treasure, we will give anything and everything for. And there's something else that happens. When we treasure something, that love actually starts to change us. So here's a silly example first. Um, Anybody ever play Candy Crush? Okay, all right. Or at least know what I'm talking about, right? The game, it's the grid. You got to line up three candies and then they pop and like this little popsicle cheers for you. And like, it's really cutesy and addictive. Um, They did all these studies on it, on people who played Candy Crush like obsessively and found that the more they played, like when they closed their eyes, they could see a grid and they could like picture little jelly beans like swapping places and were like planning out, did anybody get to that level of Candy Crush obsession? Okay, I got a, yeah, a few people, yeah. Like it changes you. What you love, you spend your time on and, and it changes you, right? Like people spent millions of dollars on this game. Like microcharges, more lives, more chances to play because they loved it. Better example, uh, think about a group of friends, right? Like you meet some people, you spend a lot of time together, you all kind of start to look alike, right? Over time, like you, you have the same inflection in your voice, you laugh at the same inside jokes, you're all wearing chacos, um, like you just kind of start looking alike after a while and and, like you develop your own language right like have you ever heard a group of bros talking like it's unintelligible except to them or like leet speak if you're a gamer like it's unintelligible but but you all know like you just start to look like each other here's what i'm trying to say it's printed for you on your sheet what we revere we resemble either for our ruin or our restoration what you revere, what, what you treasure, you start to look like. 
either to your ruin or to your healing. So everything I've just said, um, it's just it's the way things are. That's what Jesus says about us, that you are a lover and what you love shapes you. You're made to worship something, to find something incredibly valuable and give yourself to it. The problem with that is that so often we love the wrong things. Or we love the right things, but in the wrong order. One word for this is idolatry. And what we idolize, we imitate. Another little alliterative memory clue for you, right? What you revere, you resemble. What you idolize, you imitate. Uh, and if my four-year-old were to say it, what we worship, we will quake. Um, <laughs> Tim Keller says this about idols. An idol is usually a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. And we say, unless I have that, I am nothing. So, for example, uh, what happens if you idolize, if you revere doing well in your classes? That's a good thing to do, right? You, you or your parents or you in the future are paying money so that you can be here. Uh, and it would be a good thing if that paid off, right? Like if you actually showed up to class, did your work. Um, Jesus calls us to excellence, right? We're called to diligence. We're called to, to work hard at the things that, that, that in the places that God has us, right? It's a good thing to do well in your classes. But what happens when that good thing becomes an ultimate thing for you? What happens to your relationships, right? They start to suffer, Right? They, they start to get kind of whittled down because as the semester progresses and you have more and more to do in your classes and, and more and more work to stay at the top, like you have less and less time for your friends. So, yeah, that sounds really fun, but I've got this test in three days that I need to study for. Or like your friend's really hurting and they just need somebody to like hang out with them, but, but you're over here editing your paper for the eighth time because you want to get it perfect. Right? Your relationships start to suffer. What happens to your time? You start to sacrifice sleep for the benefit of your classes, for the benefit of your grades. You sacrifice your health, right? Like you eat either not at all or for convenience instead of like, like actually sitting down and making something that like, I don't know, has a vegetable in it or, or something like that. What happens to faith? You give up your time with God because it can't be sacrificed. I've got to do well in this class. What happens to your obedience of him? His rules start to feel oppressive and like they don't make sense, right? Like that whole do not steal business, like, man, that, that just doesn't make sense. What makes sense is me plagiarizing this thing because I'm strapped for time and it will give me the grade that I need. That whole like don't lie, don't say that this, that, that this work somebody else did is mine, like that doesn't make sense. Like, of course I'm gonna, gonna borrow from other people or steal from other people or, or lie to my professors and say, yes, this is all my work because I've gotta have the grade, right? We, we do this with all kinds of good things, with family, with friends, with health, with fitness, with skill, with respect of other people, right? These are all good things, but when they become ultimate things, they start to ruin us. A helpful question for you guys to ask, for you guys to ask your friends, for you guys to ask yourselves, what do you love? What's your non-negotiable? And how is that ruining me if I make it an ultimate thing? Right? What will that do to my relationships given enough rain in my life? What will that do to my time? What will that do to my faith, to my obedience to God? We idolize. What we idolize, we imitate. What we revere, we resemble, either to our ruin or our restoration. Um, what we love, what we treasure, that, that governs what we do. It governs how we think. 
and, and what we think about and how we spend our time and our money. Uh, it governs what you define as a good week. It governs what you define as success in your life. This reality, this truth that we become what we worship, that we are what we love, uh, is why rules actually don't help you change. Right? When, when we realize that we need to change, what we want is somebody to tell us how. Like, here are the steps, here are the rules, right? Do you want to be more diligent in your schoolwork? Well, rule number one, get a schedule. Rule number two, like, read the syllabus. Rule number three, and, like, give you a list of things to do. But rules, if we follow them, like, either wear us out, right, because we're trying to white-knuckle it, like, we don't actually want to do it. Rules, when we break them, just make us feel guilty, and rules for most of us, are, or maybe all of us, are just an invitation to break the rules, right? Uh, what's the rule here at Western? Don't walk under the bell tower, or you won't graduate on time. Uh, show of hands, who has walked under the bell tower? All right, rebel. Um, wet paint, like, don't you want to touch it? Right, stay off the grass. Don't you want to go run on it and, like, feel it between your toes and frolic a little bit? Uh, don't covet. Paul says in Romans 7 that as soon as he heard that command, don't covet, what happened in his heart? Coveting. Like the rule like, caused the sin in his heart. But we love rules, right? Rules are comfortable. They, they let us measure how well we're doing. If we're keeping all the rules, we must be on the road to change, right? No. Change in our actions in our thoughts, and our lives, any real lasting change only happens when there's a change in what we love. So how do we change? We need a new love. We need a new affection. And maybe you recognize the problem now, right? Because how do I change that? Right? That the heart wants what the heart wants. Like, Andrew, haven't you seen a movie before? Like, there's no reason that Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks should end up together. He put her out of business. Like, he ruined her bookstore. But the heart wants what the heart wants, right? Like, Rapunzel should not be with Flynn Rider. She's a princess, and he's a scoundrel, right? Like, he's a thief. But they're in love, right? And, and they can't change that. I've seen that movie a lot, by the way. Like, that's, that's one of Sophie's top three. Um, anyhow, different day. We can sing the songs later. Um, in a sense, you're right, right? Like, I can't change... I can't really change what I love, right? Your heart is designed, it's wired to love something. There will be something in your life that you treasure above everything else, and you can't change that fact. But you can replace what that thing is. Anybody here ever had their heart broken? Girls, you want so badly for that guy to ask you out. So... Um, you put yourself in his way, right? Like you kind of figure out where, where he's going to be and you just like happen to be there. And you laugh at all his jokes and you offer to help him with that math homework that you know nothing about. But like you just, like anytime you can spend time with him, that's great. And finally he asks you to get coffee and you like, you, know, you, got, you sit down, you got butterflies in your stomach and then he asks you for help asking out your roommate. Or guys, like you finally work up the courage to ask that girl out. Like everybody knows you're crushing on her, except for her, but she probably already knows it. And like all your friends are saying, it's like, you just got to do it. Or like, here's a good idea for a date. And you ask her out and she says, I don't want to ruin our friendship. Right? Like, that's the worst. Yeah. Or, or maybe you've like, maybe you've actually been dumped. 
or, or been the one to end a relationship. And it's so hard because you're so in love and you have so many shared memories and inside jokes. And just everywhere you look, there are reminders of, of Lucy and Jeremy. And you can't watch that TV show anymore because, like, that was your thing. And you can't go to that ice cream place anymore because, like, there was that run, one time you were eating Rocky Road and some got on your nose and, like, you wiped it off and you had your first kiss. And, like, your friends are there for you, right? Like, do you want to go get cookout? Like, do you want to have a movie night? Do you want to burn all his stuff? Like, and, and it's nice, but... But it only distracts you from the fact that your heart is shattered into a thousand pieces. And like Humpty Dumpty has it easy compared to you because you're never going to love again. And then Derek comes along, right? Or, or you meet Cindy at the malt shop. And what happens, right? <laughs> yes, I'm old, the malt shop. Yeah. <laughs> um, the world is in color again, right? Like you walk around campus grinning like an idiot and, and you hang out with your friends and there's that faraway look in your eye because you're just, you're thinking about her and, and all your friends are mad at you because you won't shut up about this person. This is what it takes to change. You have to fall in love with something else, with someone else. The only way that you will know any kind of lasting change in your life for the better is to fall more in love with Jesus. How do we do that? How, how, do we, how do we get our hearts to fall in love with him? Well, the same way you fall in love and grow in love with anybody. Spend time with them. right? Speak to him in prayer. Hear from him in the word. Spend time with his friends. right? One of the beautiful things about the Christian community is that we get to hear from one another all of the ways that Jesus is great. right? We get to hear about his faithfulness to us in spite of our failures. We get to hear about how perfectly he loves us despite our mistakes. We get to hear about how patient he is with us despite the stuff that all of us have. And as we get to know him, as we spend time with his friends, as we talk to him, our love for him starts to crowd out those other loves in our hearts. And as this happens, as you grow in love for Jesus, you start to find that the time you spend with him isn't costly. The things you give up for him aren't a sacrifice. They're reasonable. He becomes the new non-negotiable in your life and you start to change because what you revere, you resemble. You start to look more and more like Jesus. Um, I want to switch perspectives here at the end. Uh, we've been talking the whole time as if the story is about our hearts and I think it is. I think Jesus tells us the story so that we would look at ourselves and see how we're wired uh, and that he could like help us to understand ourselves better. Um, but what if it's not only about that, right? Like we've been talking this, this whole time as if we're the merchant and the treasure is Jesus himself. But what if we flip that? What if we say, what if Jesus is telling the story about himself, right? What if he's the merchant? What if he's the person walking in the field and you're the thing that he finds and he gives up everything to win you? Right? What, what if he's the one who has everything, who has created everything, and who lives eternally in heaven with his Father, and he gives all of that up to rescue you? Doesn't that like, make you love him a little bit more? Doesn't that make you see him as more and more beautiful? Because that's what happened, right? We, we worship a God, we worship a Christ who gave up the riches of heaven and, and gave up his riches and become poor, that we, by his poverty might become rich. 
And that fact that Jesus loves you like that, right, that helps us to see him as beautiful. That helps us to love him more. So look at Jesus and all of his beauty, and he will change you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it reveals to us. Um, Father, we thank you that you love us like that, that in Christ you sought us out and you did whatever it took to win us, uh, to purchase us, to bring us to yourself. Father, we pray that you would help us to love you, to love Christ, to love your spirit uh, more than anything in this world, that that would be the thing that we truly treasure, that all the other good things that we love would be ordered rightly uh, in response to that, uh, that you would help us, um, yeah, help us to love you. Father, our loves are all out of whack. Our desires are all out of order. Pray, Father, that you would show yourself to us as beautiful, that we might treasure you above all things. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.